This day has come, finally. The US-made army tactical missile system is finally in Ukraine. But this should be taken with not too much hype. They only have a range of about 160 kilometers as opposed to 300. Why Avdivka? Like, does it, does it have some particular strategic value for the Kremlin? Yes, there's a, an intense attack going on, but they're not making any gains. It makes a lot of sense for Russia politically, uh, let's be honest. Hi everyone, and welcome to This Week in Ukraine, a show where the newsroom of the Kyiv Independent explains Ukraine's biggest events in just under 30 minutes. I'm your host, Anastasia Lopatina. And today I'm joined by the Kyiv Independent reporter Francis Farrell to discuss recent frontline developments, including the first use of the highly anticipated in Ukraine attack camps, as well as Russia's offensive in Avdiivka. Francis, hello. Hi, nice to be with you. But before we go on, I'll just very quickly remind you guys to please subscribe to the Kyiv Independent wherever you're listening to the show, whether that's on YouTube or on audio platforms. Like us, rate our episodes, leave comments. It only takes a few seconds for you, but it's extremely helpful for us because more people are going to be able to see our show and they will be informed about the war in Ukraine. So, Francis, this day has come, finally. The US-made army tactical missile system is finally in Ukraine. We've all seen the video published by the Ukrainian military uh, supposedly showing the system being used for the first time. So tell us what's so special about these systems and also why it took so long for Ukraine to receive them. So the ATACMS or ATACMS is an American-made tactical ballistic missile system. And the reason that it has gained this kind of legendary status by now, uh, 600 days into Russia's war against, full-scale war against Ukraine, is that Ukraine actually already had the launches for these exact missiles uh, since summer last mm-hmm. year. So we remember back then when Ukraine received uh, the so-called HIMARS system and the M270 uh, multiple launch rocket systems. Uh, these came in June 2022 and uh, they were immediately effective on the battlefield, knocking out Russian ammunition dumps and command posts and other really valuable uh, targets and they're still doing amazing work today. But when Ukraine received those launches back then, uh, the Ukraine's Western partners, and particularly we're talking about Washington here, they only provided the so-called uh, guided multiple launch rocket system or GMRLS rockets for this system. So when we talk about HIMARS strikes, what we're really talking about is this GMRLS strike, which only has a range of 80 kilometers. And so, mm-hmm. you know, they're very useful in that range, but, but Russia has since adapted and they've moved a lot of high, high value targets out of that range because they, they know about this threat now. And so, mm-hmm. you know, ever since the start of the war, but especially when Ukraine did receive the HIMARS, uh, Kiev and Ukrainian people have been calling out for these at- attackums because the range is much higher. Uh, and while the HIMARS rockets that have been used so far have only had this range of 80 kilometers. If Ukraine received the ATACMs, which is like the big brother of the GM RLS rockets that Ukraine's been using, they have a range of potentially up to 300 kilometers, which means that they could hit pretty much anything uh, in the occupied territories. We're not even talking about the political question of, you know, could you, should Ukraine be able to strike Russia or not? But just within the occupied territories, including, of course, Crimea, the Crimean Bridge, airfields in Crimea, the Black Sea Fleet, 
this all comes into play uh, if Ukraine receives this long-range variant of, of attack MS. And it's been very clear that this is something Ukraine could use to, to great effect. And we'll talk about how it has used it in the first instance later. But every time when, whether it's Biden or some kind of spokesperson or Blinken or Austin in Washington has been asked about uh, why aren't we giving Ukraine attackums? They always said we don't quite uh, see a real need for for this particular system, and we think we should focus on on something else. And and there, you know, we'll get to it. That's but quite this, bizarre. This is where this is where again this political question is really, in my opinion, exposed quite um, damningly about how it's not clear that you know, the US and, and other Western partners actually want a complete victory for Ukraine. If there's something that's so obvious that could help in of course. in many ways. It might not change the war completely, but it could be a huge help and it's there, it's it's sitting there, um and and they don't want to give it. And and now of course we've heard that they have given it, but this should be taken with not too much hype uh, because it all depends on which variant actually that, that Ukraine will be given. And do we know which variant did we get? So from the initial strikes, um, from what we've seen from Russians taking pictures of the missile boosters that, that fell down and also from the typical unnamed sources talking to big American newspapers, we know that Ukraine got the what they used for certain and what they probably got uh, was the block one of, of the Atakams, the most basic missile. So this is immediately a kind of step down from from the hype of what everyone thought we could do with these uh, missiles, because they only have a range of about 160 kilometers as opposed to 300. So that puts them mm-hmm. in a similar place to the, the Storm Shadow, uh, the British cruise which missile, we which we already have. And, and they're equipped with cluster munitions. So they're equipped with about almost a thousand tiny little bombs that spread out and explode. Mm-hmm. So something like that is not going to be able to destroy uh, the Crimean Bridge, of course. But still, I mean, Atakamas, even in this variant, it's it's a useful thing because compared to, for example, the Storm Shatter, it's a lot quicker to be deployed because uh, it's already in this launcher truck thing. You don't have to um, have an actual plane take off and launch this missile if you if you have a target that you want to hit quickly. So do we know where attack amps have already been put to use in Ukraine? Yeah, so just a few days ago, we had the first confirmed strikes. Um, I think it, what was really satisfying about it was that uh, it was kind of what I hoped when, when attack amps would finally arrive, was that we would hear about the strike first and then we would get the the news confirmed about their delivery because i mean mm-hmm. that makes a lot more sense right you receive it in secret you use it and then the russians find out that that you have it I think we had a similar situation with HIMARS, actually yeah yeah I, i've heard rumors from military that we've had it for a while uh, a few months before the official confirmation came out and, and that makes sense because the Russians aren't complete idiots. Like if, if they, if they know that Ukraine has something and is ready to use it, they will take countermeasures, whether it's, um, making a fake plane or throwing some tires on top of a plane to protect it from drones, you know, that they'll do something. Um, mm-hmm. so, so that was good. Uh, and what we did see is two strikes on Russian airfields in occupied Luhansk, 
Luhansk Oblast in the very far east of the country and in Berdyansk, which is a port in Zaporizhia Oblast down near the Black Sea. So very strategic area considering the counteroffensive uh, and everything. Mm-hmm. And according to Ukraine's general staff, uh, the strikes knocked out, destroyed nine helicopters, one air defense launcher, and a few other special vehicles and personnel. Um, what we've seen through independent analysts are uh, using satellite imagery uh, that pretty much adds up. In fact, it could be even more. So we see uh, both in Berdyansk, the airport there, and in Luhansk, we see these helicopters which were there before and which now are just big black marks on on the ground. Um, you know, it's, it's evidence that probably the ammunition that, that the storing there burnt off or the fuel. So those, those helicopters uh, are gone completely. And, and it's worth remembering that when the attack first happened, it was Russian telegram channels who were saying that, you know, this is one of the worst single losses uh, for, for the Russian, for Russian aviation since the start of the war. So, so that's good news. And, and these strikes are really like a perfect example of how this basic version of attackums uh, should be used because you know, they don't have huge high explosive power to destroy a bunker or destroy a bridge. But with these cluster munitions, they're very good at uh, targeting things like Russian helicopters or aircraft uh, lying around in an aerodrome. Because even though the Russians try their best to spread them out as far as possible, um, because this missile has a thousand little bombs that spread out, you know, it, even spreading it out can't save these helicopters. So it was a, it was a great success in this sense. So Ukraine so far has used these new attackums to target Russia's air power, which is, you know, one of Russia's clear superiorities in this war against Ukraine. And you've mentioned that attackums have cluster munitions, but haven't cluster munitions been banned or at least somewhat restricted internationally? How are we still using them? Okay, so quickly just to to set the record straight on on cluster munitions because I think it's important um, for the world's perception of, of what's going on here. Yes, there is a convention on cluster munitions, but no, neither Ukraine nor Russia nor the US um, have actually ratified or signed um, this convention. And cluster munitions as just some kind of evil word, um, it, it doesn't really apply, like take into account the nuance of 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 the battlefield ukraine we already had this argument a few months ago when ukraine received normal artillery shells with cluster munitions from the us for the first time the fact that russia was using them in rockets in shells against civilians in civilian areas quite often you know you see these marks in kharkiv or mikolaev where 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 they were using them mm-hmm. that didn't bother anyone apparently but uh when ukraine needed them uh, for the battlefield then then that did so the danger here is yes obviously if you use them like if you use almost any dangerous munition in a built-up civilian area um that's that's a war crime and of course there's an issue with the the small bombs that don't explode um that's part of the reason why the convention was signed but ukraine has more important problems right now and we know that ukraine isn't using cluster munitions on built-up civilian areas. They need every shell they can get for the battlefield. And when we're talking about the battlefield, we're, we're mostly talking about these uh, quite empty areas, like fields or something, or trenches that have only Russian soldiers in them or an accumulation of Russian weapons or some sort of barracks that have Russian soldiers. So it's not a town full of civilians that Ukraine is using them against. Of course. Yeah, that, that's where they're needed. 
So do these new missiles have a potential to change the way this war is being fought, to change the battlefield? Potentially, but not in the current quantity uh, that they're being given. So it all depends mm-hmm. on the future deliveries, on whether whether Ukraine gets the higher range, high explosive versions as well, and whether they get enough to, to really make a big difference. Um, because according to the New York Times, they've only got 20 uh, they've only been given 20 of these old, older cluster munition versions with the shorter range. Um, if we can talk about some kind of consistent delivery chain of the more advanced versions, then, then things could get interesting because this is again all tied into Crimea, in my opinion, and how if Ukraine can eventually get the capability to strike anything they want in Crimea consistently, then then Russia might have to rethink a lot about how and why they're waging this war. Right. We've spoken actually on this podcast about this specific topic, Ukrainian attacks on occupied Crimea. I was joined by Igor Kosov. It's a fascinating episode, so uh, our listeners should check it out. So let's turn now to a much darker subject, unfortunately. Um, Russia's renewed offensive operations in eastern Ukraine, uh, specifically around Avdivka, which is a little town in Donetsk Oblast. So what's happening there and are the Russians making any meaningful gains? Yeah, so uh, a really lightning kind of large-scale Russian offensive seemed to have started there about a week ago. Um, very quickly, at first, the Russian military bloggers were very excited. They were like, oh, here we go, the storm, the Storming mm-hmm. of Avdiivka is coming. Hold on to our guys and so on. But um, you know, soon, and, and Ukrainian sources confirmed that yeah, things are pretty hot there. But uh, mm-hmm. s- soon we saw videos of uh, long columns of tanks and armored vehicles. There was one where the first tank just kind of fell off a bridge. That was quite quite fun to watch. Um, but uh, so very quick, quickly, it we we saw that mm, yes. There's an intense attack going on, but they're not making any gains. And in fact, we have a lot of visual confirmation of uh, a lot of Russian armored vehicles being lost. Uh, Tanks, uh, infantry fighting vehicles being hit by artillery, anti-tank weapons, FPV drones. Um, And they, since then, they haven't stopped. So they're still going forward and they've taken a couple of positions, a couple of trenches on the tree line, but, but so far they haven't made any progress. And, and, I think so far it's looking maybe something comparable to uh, the Battle of uh, Vukledar that we saw in winter uh, around January this year, mm-hmm. uh, where again large columns of Russian armored vehicles tried to take like a large settlement on the front line um, by storm rather than this like grinding human wave thing that we saw in Bakhmut and and failed completely but i will say that Avdiivka is in a pretty precarious location you know it's it's almost encircled on on three sides and this offensive is only about uh, a week in so it, it could be the start of of another kind of grim winter chapter of this war so both of us have been to Avdivka actually at different points in time i remember it being this tiny little town very cozy um on the outskirts of Donetsk basically so since 2014 Avdivka has been right near the Russian-occupied territory of the Donetsk Oblast. For years, you know, the city has seen shelling, then periods of quiet, and then more shelling again. Uh, and it's it's actually quite scary to be there because, you know, if you're in high buildings, right, and you can 
kind of be seen by Russian snipers and Russian military. Like that's how close the city has been to Russian occupied territory. But it's still this tiny little town that doesn't seem to hold any specific significance in, in my mind. So why Avdivka? Like, does it, does it have some particular strategic value for the Kremlin? Yeah, um, my memories of Avdivka are not, not cozy. Um, we were just walking around for a couple of minutes and we were targeted by cluster munitions, shells, tank fire. And I think once we were in the basement, there were some larger airstrikes as well. So. Yeah, I went there before the full-scale invasion. For yeah. context, the, yeah. the proximity is 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 a pretty scary thing. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I mean, you're right. Strategically, in terms of you know the future of some kind of ongoing Russian offensive in Donbas, um, doesn't make too much sense uh, because the area beyond Avdiivka is not areas that they could make quick progress in very very easily. And in fact, because at the moment it has this kind of almost three-side encirclement, then um, you know, it would actually, taking up Divka would just make the front line shorter and easier to defend uh, for Ukrainian forces, probably. But here, I think it makes a lot of sense for Russia politically, uh, let's be honest, because first of all, Avdivka, I mean, they tried to take it back in 2014, and, and since then, it was like this symbol of Ukrainian resistance right outside uh, Donetsk. Mm-hmm. And it's also a symbol of their propaganda about shelling Donetsk and Donbass constantly because, oh, the Ukrainians mm-hmm. are right here. So they, they use Avdivka as a base to shell uh, Donetsk, so on, so on. Um, so that would be a propaganda victory. It would be a propaganda victory just to have any little town or city captured at this point. You know, we, we know mm-hmm. how, how important Bakhmut was for them just to finally walk in to the ruins and, and eventually start losing ground immediately. But it's the same with Avdiivka, you know, it, we're in a part of a, a new phase of the war where offensive operations, taking territory is really, really hard for both sides. And so for that reason, Avdivka makes a lot of sense, uh, unfortunately, and and it's good that the first few attacks have been fought off. But again, this could be a focal point for them throughout winter. And how is Ukraine's counteroffensive going in the meantime? Are we seeing any movement along the southern front line around Kherson, around Zaporizhia? Yes, as we talked about uh, with you last time, I think we're slowly reaching a point where the counteroffensive is is slowly culminating. Both sides are digging in for winter, although you know the attack around Avdiivka shows that Russia has intentions to to retake the initiative. You know that they're not they're not depleted too much to the point where they can't uh, undertake offensives of their own. And there's still reports that they're still pushing around uh, Zaporizhia Oblast to try and you know, expand the breach in the line that they've created there. Uh, and uh, we heard just today, or just yesterday, that uh, Russian sources reported that Ukraine took a few villages, potentially, or entered a few villages on the left bank of the Dnipro River uh, near Kherson. Um, mm-hmm. And then the general staff said that Russia actually struck those villages with airstrikes. So that kind of confirms that, that Ukrainian forces were there. Um, but again, with with the river, with Kherson, um, don't, I, I would just avoid getting too, too hyped about anything because, because what we've seen there are constant raids back and forth. And we have seen, I have heard personally from people there about some kind of continuous presence on the other side of the river. Um, but 
just the fact that Ukrainian soldiers walked into a village at one point doesn't necessarily uh, mean too much until we get more confirmation. We're now going to be moving to the community question of today's episode. As always, I will remind you guys to go to kimindependent.com slash membership to subscribe to the Kimindependent, support us. There's an option for a one-time donation and also different tiers of monthly support for as little as $5 a month. You get really cool exclusive perks, including the ability to send us in questions before every single uh, episode. And the question that we're going to be addressing today is, mm, the community member is asking, what is the condition of the former Kahovka reservoir? That's, of course, the dam that was blown up by the Russians. Is it dry, solid land now, or is it meters deep mud that still prevents all kinds of operations across the reservoir? It's a good question. I would say it's kind of a mixture of the two, depending on how close to the level uh, of the water you are. I was in Zaporizhia uh, last month, so I saw a bit of it actually close to the, the dam that's further up. But even even the parts that have dried significantly, I mean, we saw pictures of vegetation growing up out of nowhere uh, in this land. It's worth remembering there are still no roads and there is still no cover whatsoever. So, and, and the land is, is still soft. You still have to attempt uh, a crossing of, of the river in the new place where it is running. So it's, uh, yeah, especially now in winter, that vegetation is now going to be gone. Um, it's just it's just miles and miles of open space uh which which can be targeted because both sides have been you know they they have been present on either bank of of that river before the dam was exploded what kind of vehicles can get through that mud and that and those roads if there hasn't been much rain and if they're on the drier parts um it's it's possible that like tanks and other tracked vehicles uh, could travel along there but then they still have to deal with the river crossing itself. And for that river crossing, you need to bring in pontoon bridges. And for that, you need wheeled vehicles. And for wheeled vehicles, you need roads. And it's just, I think it's, we'll see. I mean, there it's might be special operations, raids, so on um, in the coming months. But, but it's, it's just too much effort, I think, at this point. Well, Francis, thank you so much for joining us. As always, it was very interesting to listen to you. Always good to be here. Also this week, the Ukrainian parliament approved measures to strengthen the financial monitoring of politicians. All politically exposed persons will now be subject to financial monitoring their entire lives. According to lawmaker Yaroslav Zelizniak, this measure fulfills the requirements of the International Monetary Fund. On October 18th, Israel's ambassador to Ukraine, Michael Brodsky, said that 23 Ukrainians were killed in Hamas terrorist attacks against Israel. And a report by the UK's National Audit Office said that almost 5,000 Ukrainian families have risked or continue to be at risk of homelessness in the UK. Those families make up around 8% of all of the families that arrived to the UK after Russia's full-scale invasion through the Homes for Ukraine scheme. You can find our show on YouTube and all audio platforms every Friday morning. If you like this episode, please subscribe to us, like our content, and leave comments wherever you're listening to this podcast. Please support the Kim Independent by donating to us, becoming members of our community. Just go to kimindependent.com slash membership and also support us by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening.